Welcome to Standing at the Edge. I'm Casey Stratton. This is Season 1, Episode 11. And my husband is very loudly putting away dishes downstairs, so if you hear some clanging, it is not Judy Garland on the trolley and meet me in St. Louis. I don't know where that just came from. <laughs> Okie doke. That's like the gayest thing I've probably ever said. So, um, well, let me tell you some stuff that's going on with me. If you listened to last week's episode, you heard that I was a day late making it because I had hurt my shoulder. Well... It's worse than that. Turns out I broke my collarbone, my clavicle. I just found out yesterday. And this is me being just classic on brand. I thought I saw one of my cats, my peripheral vision, like I was about to step on them. If you have pets, you probably have done this. So I tripped and I fell. And I hit the table on the way down and then I fell all the way down. So I was like, oh, that sucks. It hurts. Oh, well, I'm going to bed. So I did. It was late at night when this happened. And then the next morning I woke up in excruciating pain. And I thought, well... I can't really lift my arm, but maybe it'll go away. So I iced it and I thought, well, we'll see. We'll give it a couple days. If it's not better, you know, by next week, I'll email my doctor. So I waited a full week, still couldn't really lift my arm, pretty bad pain. I have a really high pain tolerance and so does my brother and sister. So uh, it's interesting because when my brother was little, he broke his arm and he walked around just we, like nothing. And then my parents looked out the window and saw him outside playing and he was holding his arm. So we took him to the emergency room. He'd broken it. So very similarly, I just kind of walked around. I was still doing three-mile walks. I was like, wow, I'm in a lot of pain, but we'll see. So I messaged my doctor. She ordered some x-rays. I went in and had those yesterday. Turned, And then she called me last night and said, you broke your collarbone. So I'm in a sling for weeks, months. Um, I'm trying to get in to see an orthopedic surgeon to see if I need to have surgery because it wasn't a clean break. But speaking of breaks, I'm like, can I get one, please? I just, ooh, I know, I feel, I feel selfish about it, but the last few years have just been one thing on top of the other, and now I broke my collarbone. It is very painful, I will say. Even I gave it an 8 and a 9 on the pain scale, and I'm usually like, eh, I'm about a 4. And the doctors always joke and say, well, your 4 is like a 7, so we'll take that as a 7. Anyway, interesting times, interesting times. The Democratic National Convention, this it was this week, is this week. It's been virtual. I have not watched all of it, but what I have seen has been very inspiring. I think it's going to be very interesting to juxtapose that with what we will be seeing next week at the Republican National Convention, which I don't think will be quite as inspiring. But it, there seems to be a lot of talk about unity, about love, about hope, about getting through these times together and having the proper leadership. I have not yet watched Barack Obama's speech from last night, but I can't wait to because I've read that it's the most searing speech he's ever given. So that's going to be interesting. Um, Kamala Harris, loving it still, loving that she's Senator Harris is the nominee for vice president. Fantastic. Um, neither of them were in my top two. I'll say that much. But again, I keep seeing this meme and I keep thinking this is so true. We're not looking for a marriage in a political situation we're looking for the bus going in the right direction like we know where we need to go which bus is going to get me closer i don't need the perfect partner this is not me getting married and i wish we did have the perfect people but we're never going to because there are no perfect people and the political system here is ridiculous i really wish we did not have a two-party system but we do so i'm seeing a lot of people arguing about throwing your vote away if you vote third party i'm not going to judge anybody for anything but i just know that if i see 2016 play out again i might be angry at some people I might be, um, you know, I might not say anything, 
but I might. Um, I don't know. It's hard. It's just hard to see this playing out. It's terrifying. This election, I really feel, is the most important I've ever seen. I'm just really, I'm really nervous. But right now, I'm just going to try to recover from my broken collarbone. It's my third week back working. <laughs> Come on. Now I have to type with one hand. Thank goodness it was not my dominant side that I fell on. It was my left side and I'm right-handed. So, whew. Anyhow, this week, we're going to talk about what happened after Standing at the Edge. And I'm going to spill some tea. I'm going to spill a lot of tea about corporate entities and things like that. So let's dig in. Last week, we left off with me finishing the recording of Standing at the Edge, taking a little time to be with my family, and then I went back to New York. So this was mid-April 2003, and Sony had originally slated Standing at the Edge to be released in August of 2003. So I get back to New York and I get on the, the subway and I head up to Madison, 550 Madison Avenue and I'm like, hey, what do we, what's next? What do we do now? Like, I'm all excited. I've got my major label record. I'm super into it. We, it had just been mastered. I was at my, my mom's house in Grand Rapids, Michigan, suburb of Grand Rapids called Jenison. I was there when it was mastered and, and I talked to uh, Bob Ludwig who mastered it. I talked to him on the phone. He was telling me much. He was a fan of the album. Great. Good times. So I get back to New York, I go to Sony, I'm like, well, what's next? Are we are talking artwork? Are we talking videos? Like, what are we talking? And they're like, well, you know, we appreciate your enthusiasm, but just, it's too soon. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. So by the time they quote unquote got to it, then they tell me, oh, you know what? We got a little bit of a late start putting this together. So we're going to put it out in January of 2004. I'm going, okay. Well, so I was too soon but you appreciated my enthusiasm and now it's too late so okay and this is going to be a long string of me having a lot of i told you so's uh and it just is what it is to paraphrase certain things happening right now in america anyhow i was not pleased. I was not happy to have a record come out in January. I think if you're an established artist, you can pull that off. But to try to get people to buy a new a record right after Christmas of somebody new when they just spent all their money buying gifts for people, I was like, this isn't going to be great. So we started the process. I met with the art department. I loved the art directors. I will say the art department, of course, they're the art department. It's like the only creative wing of that whole company at the time. So, and I had some people that worked there that I really liked working with. This is not an indictment of any particular individuals per se, although there were some stories. I'll tell them soon in this podcast. Uh, and I won't name names, but I will, I will tell you some stories. So I work, I work with the art department. They get this really amazing photographer, Frank Alkenfels III, to do my album artwork. Uh, so the photo shoot. First big photo shoot of my career like with a famous photographer who has photographed everyone. It's a $35,000 day. It's expensive, right? It ended up being a 13 and a half hour day, and all I had was a half hour for lunch. And I'm not complaining, I'm just saying it was a lot, it was intense. And I've told this story years ago, I'm gonna tell it again, it's embarrassing, but I'm just gonna do it. The very first setup at like 8.30 in the morning with all the Sony people there, cause you know, they gotta stop by and make sure that I'm being supervised, cause I needed all this supervision apparently. So I had this stylist, her name was Jennifer Lopez. She was not J-Lo, but we laughed about it cause she was Jennifer Lopez. So 
so oh that's the other let me back up a little bit so a few days before or a week before the photo shoot something like that jennifer lopez who they hired to do the styling which is the person who deals with your clothing she shows up in a lincoln town car that they rent you know that they hired out for us and we get in this lincoln town car and go all over new york just buying clothes okay fun I got an Alexander McQueen suit that I still have that we got at Century 21, which is like fancy clothes that are off season. So they sell them for cheaper, but it was still $900. I got all these like Italian shirts, which have since been eaten by moths because of course moths always go for the good clothes first because they're purer fabric. Uh, Anyhow, I had all these great clothes. So there's a room with a rack of clothing and I'm just having to change in front of everybody which now I'm more used to back then it made me a little uncomfortable because I'm just like changing clothes and everyone's acting like it's no big deal because to them it isn't but they decided to do if you look in the standing edge booklet if you actually have the CD dinosaur that that is there is one photo where you see my face and it's like this white gauzy thing so there was this screen that was like translucent and it would only work if you literally put like your body right on it So they had me take my shirt off. So I'm shirtless in front of a bunch of executives and the whole crew and the stylist, fine. Not thrilled, but they asked me to put my body against this screen so they can take photographs. Again, this is the very first setup. It's 8.30 in the morning. There are literally at least 20 people standing there staring at me and the photographer is telling me to get my nipple off the screen because it's in the shot. So I'm trying to like maneuver my body so that it's on the screen, but my nipple isn't showing and I'm you know literally there's people yelling out about my nipple at 8:30 in the morning it was not my favorite moment of life and then there was actually a moment where they made me stand on the edge ironically of the roof of the building and it was so windy and it was like a seven story building and i was terrified i don't even know if it's in there it might be i can't remember even but yeah there was this black and white image of me standing on the edge of a rooftop but it was insane and here's another thing so i ended up in a stalemate with sony again because they wanted me to always wear glasses and i did not want to because they would like fall down my nose when i tried to play live and so for years and years and years i wore glasses in my everyday life but i wore contacts for anything professional also because and this photographer said the same thing they felt like my eyes were a good feature of my face because they're kind of shaped in a unique way like a cat Uh, so Sony made us do every single setup with glasses on and without glasses on. And finally, the photographer said, give me your glasses. And he threw them across the room. He said, we're done doing this. Your eyes are your best feature. We're going to just, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not doing a bunch of shots with your glasses on. So then this is, I'm going to jump around a little bit. So then after the fact, Sony's mad. They decide that they're just going to dig in their heels. I have to wear glasses all the time. I dig in my heels saying, no, I'm not going to. I don't, that's not what I want to do. It's not great for playing live and it's just not how I want to present my image. And they're like, well, why don't you just get some elastic and have them you know, stay on your head with elastic? And I was like, should I wear a headgear too on stage? Because I just don't think I want to put elastic on my glasses. Uh, And then they said to me, and this is the first of many, and this is how corporate environments work for artists. They said to me, well, you're not attractive enough that people are going to buy your records. So if you wear glasses, you seem smart and intellectual and women will buy the album because they think you look smart, but you're not cute enough to sell records. And I'm going to remind you that I was signed to Sony Classical. So that's fun. Um, Lots of stories like that. Um, They wanted me to lose weight. I asked if I could use the Sony gym. They said no, it was only for employees. 
I said, well, will you get me a personal trainer? They said, no. Uh, and somebody said to me, just do cocaine or whatever. That You'll lose weight that way. So that's healthy. It's a healthy environment. There's a lot about image. And I, again, I'm a man. A gay man, but a man. So, hmm, I don't even want to think about it. Sorry about it, ladies. And those who identify as female. <sighs> anyway... It was a long, long day on that photo shoot, but it was a fun day, and I got to wear all the fun clothes, and I got to keep some of them, which was really cool and exciting. So that was one perk. That, that's a silver lining of a major label experience is that you get to be fancy. So we did the photo shoot, and then we started looking you know, to see what the album cover would be, and of course, it's the classic two-toned wall with me in the sleeveless shirt. Um, I've had a lot of people tell me they actually did buy the album because of that cover and I'm not wearing glasses am I so I'm not saying I'm attractive because I don't feel like that internally I don't think I'm hideous but somewhere in the middle so uh yeah I won that fight I said but it took six weeks of us going back and forth before Sony finally relented and said fine you don't have to wear your glasses they also like got mad if I changed my hair color too much because I was red with some help um and so yeah if i dyed it too dark they would like chastise me and i'd be in trouble and so they said from now on you need to uh, whenever you're going to change anything about your physical appearance you need to okay it with us like okie doke and they would make me come in and get weighed and all sorts of stuff it was sometimes very demoralizing and they would they would just have a lot of conversation about how i was too fat and my eyes were too small right in front of me in boardrooms like you know with conference tables and like literally one time they said, well, your eyes are too small. That's another reason we want you to wear glasses. I said, well, what do you want me to do about that? I can't lose 20 pounds or I can't gain 20 pounds in my eyes and lose 20 pounds in my gut. Okay. It's not going to happen. Can't make them bigger. I don't, maybe you can get an eye enlargement, but it's not something I'm about to do. You can see I'm still a little bitter about all this because it's just, that's not what I wanted to be doing. Right. And I knew I was signed to a corporation, but I had my, my doubts. I mean, I, as we, we talked about last week, I wanted to go independent. I wanted to, but the team of people I was working with really pushed me to go with a, a major label. And I get where they were coming from, but I was hesitant from the beginning. So when this stuff started going down, excuse me, I had to fix my headphones. When this stuff started going down, I was like, oh, this is exactly what I was afraid of. And then I heard about the merger. So Sony merged with BMG, and I said in an earlier podcast, my manager called and said, Sony's merging with BMG, you're hearing it before the public. And I said, oh shit, that was literally my exact reaction was oh shit i knew it was not going to be good and it wasn't so we start this steady stream of things starting to get worse and worse so first of all they decide for the video for for reasons unexplained which was the lead single that they were going to have a contest with the nyc film school for a student director in the graduate school program to make my video for ten thousand dollars i had lots of issues with that I said, you're exploiting them. You're trying to get something cheap. And it was weird because they had spent all this money and then all of a sudden, nope. But I, I found out it's because there was some restructuring done before the merger was even finalized or happening. And they cut the marketing budget like drastically for the whole label I was on, for Sony Classical in general. And there were, there were a lot of people who didn't like each other. So decisions were being made really on a personal level. Like, I don't like you, so I'm cutting your budget. So there was all this infighting. And on some level, it was not a great experience to go through this and see my career start unraveling. But when I look back on it, I'm like, okay, I can see clearly that it was political. 
because what happened, if you've watched the documentary Record Deal, I talked about this. When things started to go south, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but everybody knows things went south, they started pulling the whole, it's not us, it's your record. The music's not good enough. I'm like, okay, but you got me in a bidding war and you spent $433,000 on this record that you then thought had five singles on it. So I don't know why six months ago you thought this record was so good and now you are trying to blame all these failures on the record. It's not the music's fault. I, I knew it. I still know it. I absolutely believe it. So the budgets got cut. So I'm like, okay, we're going to make this music video for $10,000. So I had to read through all these treatments. And then there was like a committee, which I was part of, where we decided who we would choose. And it was this wonderful, I can't even remember her name, but she was an Indian American female director. Great, right? Like that's checking off a lot of my inclusivity boxes. Like I'm feeling like great, great, great. It's someone who is not some white guy who has a rich dad. So she had this idea to basically film like people's secret single behavior. If you've ever seen Sex and the City, they talk about that. So things people do when they're alone that they wouldn't want other people to see. So there was like a scene with like a woman in the bathtub in a bubble bath eating ice cream right out of the carton. There was a guy who had all these like protein powders and like bulk up, like he was a little scrawny little guy. And it was like bulk up powder and like all these things that people were doing in their apartments in New York City that were hidden. And then they shot my scenes that you see in the actual Freezes Unexplained video. You may notice that there's this disjointed quality of my scenes in the rest of that video. Well, you're gonna find out why in a second. So we filmed this whole video, I don't like it. I'm like, this is a $10,000 video and it's nobody's fault, but yours. So I just said, I don't know why we're doing this and I have email threads somewhere where I'm like, I, I just feel like we're trying to cut corners cost-wise and it's just gonna end up being more expensive in the long run because we're gonna have to redo it. And sure enough, everybody decides they don't like it. Now they have to go make a real video. Great. What I did not know was that they would go behind my back and have the president of the label's son, who was a, f a director, white guy with a rich dad, uh, film what you see. And it was based on an art exhibit, I guess. I still, I've never seen the art exhibit it's based on, but if you've seen the Friesen's Unexplained video, if you haven't, you can look it up on YouTube. I mean, I've gotten a little bit better about it now, but when I first saw it, I called Sony the next day and said, I literally had a nightmare after I watched this video. It is creepy. It does not match the song. I don't get it. it had, my footage has nothing to do with the rest of it. My footage was shot in color. They just converted it to black and white and they just cobbled it together. And here's what really bothered me. I had a clause in my contract that said I had to have mutual approval on any video or photo. And they just basically said, what are you gonna do, sue us? We'll throw so many lawyers at you, you'll be in court for 10 years and your career will be stuck. So this started a pattern of them breaking the contract and just saying, what are you gonna do about it? It happened over and over again. I'm like, I don't know why we spent nine months and $25,000 of my money to negotiate this contract that you're not gonna ever honor yet I'm held to every standard in it. And none of this is unusual. Like this is what happens. And I'm just one person, I'm one cog in the system. This is just my personal experience. It was difficult for me, but people have gone through worse, I'm sure. I'm 100% sure. Uh, it was just, it was disheartening because I wanted to be talking about music. I wanted to be out there on the road. I wanted to get the record out. I wanted to make a video I could be proud of. I just felt like all, any amount of control I thought I had was a myth. I had 
purposefully negotiated things like video approval into my contract because I knew I had them in a bidding war. So I got things that most people don't get. Most people don't get those kinds of approvals. But I had them and then they just steamrolled right over them because they're used to people in our in contracts that don't have those things. So the video scared me and it was like, too, they were like basically, sorry, it's too late and we've already spent enough money. And I'm like, whose fault is that? I told you so when you made the first cheap $10,000 video. And then I remember on the day we actually shot with the student director, I left all my clothes in the, the car and then they had to have central booking or whatever of the car company find the driver and have him bring it back to me. And then the assistant director kept bossing me around, calling me actor, actor, we're ready for you, actor. And I was like, I'm the artist in the video and we're not ready. So you're going to have to wait for me for a minute. Uh, it was stressful, but whatever. So the video, oh, yeah, so I'm not happy about that. Then... They decided to do a single mix. They pulled a Tori Amos Little Earthquakes on me and said the piano was too loud. They wanted to do a remix with this really famous radio remix guy to have the guitars be louder. I don't even know if it exists anywhere. I have it on a CD somewhere, but I don't know where it is. I probably couldn't find it even if I wanted to. Uh, so there was this single version of Reasons Unexplained done and Patrick Leonard went and worked with Michael Perfit, the first engineer from Stand at the Edge. And they worked with this guy who was known for his fancy glossy radio mixes of singles. And I end up getting the CD or no, I get an MP3 sent to me into my email and I hear it. And Pat had put this crazy buzzing sound into the mix. So it's like, ah, ah. And I'm like, what is this? We're supposed to be doing a radio mix, not adding new sounds when I'm not there. Because this is all happening in Los Angeles. I'm in New York. So I am furious. I hate it. So Michael Perfect calls me up and says, listen, I am putting myself in a terrible position, but I had to do this for you. I knew you were not going to like that sound. So I ran an alternate mix after Pat went home without it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're a lifesaver. I'm like, do you really mind though if I play that card? He's like, it's probably not going to be great, but go ahead. So I did. I called up Sony and I called up the mastering studio and I said, there is a seventh track on there because they run it like with the vocal up with the vocal down an instrumental version with the piano without the piano in case i need to play it live on tv with a track so we don't want the piano in there so it's instrumental with piano instrumental without piano just all these different ways but so i'm like there's a seventh track that you have that is another version without the keyboard sound so that's what i want and that's what you're going to do and i'm like shaking like i'm so annoyed and just nervous and scared and I remember like going to Sony and being like, um, this version that we have, it's not, we're not using it. I've already made the call. I remember being at Sony at the president's office, talking to his assistant and just being, I remember shaking. I was so upset. And I don't know why, just people making these unilateral decisions behind my back just because they're making an alternate version with the piano quieter. For, again, a song where the video is me playing the piano, but uh, whatever. It wasn't going to be the video mix because the video was already edited and done. It was just going to be the radio version, which, again, don't get me started on why should the radio version be different than the video. (laughs) I don't get it. Although nobody played videos anymore anyway. I would see it in clubs, though, sometimes. It was on one of those DVDs that, like, clubs used to have videos playing. So even here, when I moved back to Grand Rapids, they would play it sometimes. So it was just nuts. So then Pat Leonard calls me furious. I can't believe Michael did that one and I can't believe that you would 
do that behind my back. And I'm like, well, I get it that you're the producer, but I'm the artist and you made a decision that I wasn't consulted on. And Michael knew I wasn't going to like it. And he was right. And he was like, well, I can't help it if neither of you have any taste. And he hung up on me and I didn't talk to him for years. So that wasn't great. We're fine now. But I've, I mean, behind the scenes, again, I love Pat Leonard, but most artists I've met that have also worked with him, I'm like, eh, if you haven't fought with Pat, you haven't worked with Pat. So he has strong opinions. I did too. It was, you know, it was just a, a moment of both of us being fired up in the moment. I'm not trying to talk smack. It's just what happened. So poor Michael, he was in the doghouse big time. He, I guess he almost got fired from what he told me. Really weird. Um, a fun story, actually. Uh Pat and Michael, right after they worked with me, worked with Madonna on this like super secret project where there was like this super secret phone line. And I guess Michael tells me that one night the power went out and they were stuck waiting for a generator or something. And so Michael pulled open his laptop and played Standing at the Edge for Madonna. I guess she liked it. And she'd heard my album World Woman Medusa in 1998 and actually met her. But well, maybe we'll talk about that next week. But uh, yeah, so I guess she was digging it. So that was the second time Madonna had listened to my music. I was pretty excited about that. And then uh, one day I needed to talk to Pat. So I called the super secret studio line. Ooh, that's a lot of S's. And Madonna answered the phone. And I was like, um, I could tell it was her. Her voice is distinctive, obviously. And I'm like, is Patrick available? And she's like, oh, he stepped out. Can you take a message? And I'm like, um, it's Casey Stratton. I need him to call me back. Bye. And I like hung up on the phone. I hung up on her. I just couldn't handle it. I'm not usually super starstruck, but I mean, it's Madonna. Let's just, I don't know. So that was a fun, a fun moment. Anyway, it just became after that, like argument upon argument upon argument about every little thing. They decided, you know, again, to change the order of the record. They didn't, I wanted to call it from sea into sky. They said, absolutely not. They wanted it to just be called Casey Stratton. I was not having that. I'm like, no, because I get this as my first major label record, but it's not my first record. I don't want it to be called eponymous. You know, I don't want it to be eponymous. I want it to be my name. So we finally settled on Standing at the Edge because of the Lion Bloom, the first line. So, yeah, um, there are more things like, and these are little petty things, but I remember saying like, where's the Christmas party going to be this year? And they were like, oh, because we have to save money because of the budget cuts, oh, we're not inviting artists this year. <laughs> okay. Just employees. Like, you're not going to invite the artists on the label to the Christmas party? Because the year before, I've been fun. I was hanging out with J Joshua Bell and Kristen Chenoweth and all these people. It was super fun. So that was, I was like, oh, of course I'm not invited. Why, you know, why celebrate the artists who are the ones out there making the money for you guys? But okie doke. But that's not how it works. You're basically treated like nothing. It got to the point where when I would have to travel, they would only give me $100 a night for a hotel room. And I'd be going places like Boston or Washington, D.C., so I'd have to stay in like this awful, scary, rundown place. And they would all be at like the Four Seasons or whatever. And I remember I complained about it. And one of the VPs were like, well, I only get 350 a night and I'm a VP. I'm like, okay, but I'm an artist on the label. Basically, we were the equivalent of the executive assistants, of, like anyone on the assistant level. Like, so it's like you either answered the phone or you're an artist and that's the same thing. And that's fine. There's, I'm not discounting any of those people in fact they were my favorite people Th those are the people that I went and had happy hour with so I guess maybe there's a truth in that I felt much more grounded and then you know the VPs and stuff and and I guess that's normal but I don't know I always wonder if I had gotten really really like famous like rich and famous like would I be bougie I think in some ways yes because like I stayed at the Ritz Carlton a couple years ago for a work thing and I I liked it I was like okay I could get used to this but I don't think I would ever 
treat people badly because of it. I don't think I would be condescending. I hope not. I mean, I, I don't know. I guess I, I can't know, but I hope not. But even when I go to really fancy places, I try to be nice to people because everyone's just trying to get ahead and do their job. And I'm not saying, again, that being someone's assistant is is bad. I just think it's interesting that the mentality was that the artists were kind of like on the bottom of the ladder. And even if you were famous, they didn't really treat you very well. I mean, better than me. But yeah, interesting times. So then the BMG merger really happened and most of the staff were let go in favor of BMG classical people or BMG classics, whatever it was called, because they had a better track record. They had just had better sales. So, you know, they made a strategic decision. And so those people came in with their own roster of clients and I was a Sony classical artist and they didn't care about what happened to me. So I could tell, like I said earlier in another episode, like it got to the point where by the time the album was about to come out, I would call Sony and they would be like, who's this? And you're an artist with us? I'd be like, yeah, my album's coming out in two weeks. So I'm feeling really great that the marketing department doesn't know who I am. It's great. So this podcast has made me realize how often I start my sentences with so when I'm telling a story. Uh, that's my link. The album came out. It was exciting. I came back to Michigan and did this whole press tour. I was like on TV and did all these fun things. I did a residency at Joe's Pub in New York, which was super cool. It's a great venue. It's intimate. And I was really excited to play there. And I had a dressing room and stuff like that. I was, I was like, okay. Uh, and the album, like, it just it wasn't doing well. They promised me they would give me more time than most artists get. Usually you get eight weeks. You do all that work for like a year and a half of your life and you get eight weeks to do well or not do well. And they made this terrible decision decisions that I was not cool with and were deeply hurtful and I am going to tell you all about that next week in the finale of the first season do podcasts have season finales mine does okay so next week will be the season finale <laughs> of my podcast and I don't think there will be any plot twists Except that, my, that whatever progress I was making on my new album, which was one song I recorded, is out the window because now I can't play the piano for like three months or something. Collarbones. They're rude. So, yeah, tune in next week. I'll tell you more about what happened in the aftermath of the release of Stanley at the Edge, including how I ended up moving back home and all these other things. And then maybe we'll have some fun surprises, some Easter eggs next week, some fun stuff to throw in to celebrate 12 episodes. And I'm so grateful that you are here and that you listen. So, yes, next week, we will talk more. Stay safe. COVID is still here in the United States. Stay safe. Please wear your mask. It's not just for you. It's for everybody else, too. We got to do our part. It's not a lot. People sacrifice so much more in other generations. We can do this. We can get through it. But we have to be there for each other. We have to help each other out. We have to make sure we're vetting the information we're getting online. And I'm about to start programs with kids in, in a month. So I'm going to be talking a lot about that. How do you find credible information? So please be well. Again, safe, 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 safe. Try to find happiness or comfort or any sort of joy where you can. These are rough times. It's hard to function. I get it. Please be well. Talk to you later.